If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 20. All right, this is Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. This is God's word for us this morning. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. The story opens and we learn that Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem come to talk to Jesus. Uh, This would be what you might call the top brass. Uh, If they're coming from Jerusalem, they're coming from headquarters to see what is going on with this guy who is teaching all around the land. And the question they have for Jesus is simple. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders by eating with unwashed hands? Let's think a little bit about what the tradition of the elders was. The tradition of the elders was uh, all of these rules that had been made so that God's people wouldn't even get close to breaking God's law. You see this all throughout the Bible. Most of the time when Jesus is arguing with Pharisees, it is over these traditions of the elders. So for instance, they were concerned that God's people wouldn't violate the Sabbath, so they would make rules like, you can't even carry a mat on the Sabbath. They would make all of these rules, building a a fence, building a hedge around the law, so that people couldn't even get close to breaking the rules. And it's important to note that the Pharisees, in doing this, 
were well intended. The Pharisees cared about holiness. The Pharisees were trying to get God's people to just be holy. Because what the Pharisees believed is if God's people would just be holy, if they would be serious about keeping God's law, then God would restore Israel to its former greatness, that Rome would get driven out, and that Israel would be what it was meant to be. The Pharisees thought this was a good thing to build a hedge around the law to keep people from even getting close to sinning. And so one of the traditions that they had was that they would wash their hands with a bowl of water before they would eat in case they had touched something unclean and thus would render their food unclean or in case their food was unclean and they would be able to eat something that would defile them. So they wash their hands to make sure that they're not defiling themselves when they eat. In this time period, Washing your hands before a meal was what serious believers did. What would that be for us? What are the traditions that we have that are the things that sort of serious believers do? I'm about to give you a list. And I'm not trying to pick a fight. So if you have questions, we can talk about this stuff later. So what are the things that we have made as traditions and then said, this is what serious believers do. The people that really care about following Jesus and being obedient do these things. Here's one of them. Praying before meals. The Bible never says we have to pray before meals. Praying before meals is a tradition we have and we often act as if serious believers do it. Sometimes we have behavioral traditions uh, that the Bible doesn't specifically command, uh, but we have them anyway. Uh, That serious Christians don't drink or dance or smoke. Um, These are not explicit things that are forbidden in the Scriptures, but we've sort of said these are behavioral things that good Christians don't do. Another tradition, uh, bringing your Bible to worship. It's a good thing to bring your Bible to worship I'm not saying don't bring your Bible to worship. I'm just saying your Bible doesn't say you have to bring your Bible to worship. Uh, It doesn't have to be this way. Something like listening only to Christian music is a tradition that is not commanded in the Bible. uh, But sometimes we treat it as if that's what serious Christians do. Uh, The way people vote is sometimes treated as... uh, an intrinsic aspect of following Jesus. And we say serious Christians vote a certain way. Perhaps the one that has seeped most deeply into our Christian culture is the idea of a quiet time each day. Listen, it's a good thing to read your Bible. It is a good thing to pray. But the Bible nowhere prescribes what that looks like. And so one of the things that we have come to understand is that serious Christians have a quiet time each day, a focused time of prayer and reflection and scripture reading. And again, it's not something that is explicitly commanded in scripture, but you're getting the point here of what the Pharisees are asking Jesus about. When the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, why are your disciples not washing their hands? That would be functionally the equivalent of someone coming and saying, why do your disciples not have quiet times? 
Why do your disciples not fill in the blank? There were these traditions in the ancient world, and there are traditions today that we say serious Christians do this. So how does Jesus respond? We see this in verses 3 to 9. Jesus fires back with what I believe young people these days call a savage bird. He flips and he escalates the conversation. The Pharisees come and say, why do your disciples break the tradition? And Jesus says, and why do you break God's commandment? So he goes higher and farther than they do. He says, why are you breaking the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? And then he gives an example of a way that they are doing this. He says, the Bible says to honor your father and mother. And you are saying that a voluntary financial contribution to God trumps your care for aging parents. You see, in the ancient world, kids were your retirement plan. And the Pharisees had a tradition that anything that they had given to God, they don't have to use to support their families. They had made a tradition that gave them some ability to skirt the requirements of the fifth commandment. Jesus is saying, you are ignoring the Bible here for the sake of your tradition. And because of that, you're hypocrites. Jesus says, in fact, Isaiah 29, 13 is about you. You claim to honor God, but your heart is far from him. You worship in vain, all the while claiming to speak for God. Man, that's pretty like right down the middle at him. Like right between the eyes, Jesus comes back at the Pharisees. There's four things I think we can see here in Jesus' response to them that might help us think about tradition and what it is Jesus is uh, commending and what he is forbidding. Here's the first thing as we think about tradition. Good intentions are not enough. Good intentions are not enough. Being well-intentioned does not mean that you are doing what is right. The Pharisees, by all accounts, were well-intentioned, and Jesus tells them that they are hypocrites. If our traditions, if our understandings are not informed by the Bible, it is easy for us to miss the very heart of God. Good intentions are not enough. The second thing, uh, hypocrisy is not the same thing as imperfectly living out your beliefs. Um, All of us fail to completely live out the implications of the gospel in our daily lives, but hypocrisy uh, comes from a Greek word that meant actor. Um, These were people who outwardly said one thing, but inwardly believed something else and did something else. It's also helpful to note if you are here this morning and you don't like Jesus because sometimes his followers are hypocrites, you should note that you actually agree with Jesus. Jesus also has strong feelings about hypocrites among those who would claim to follow God. So that's the second thing. Hypocrisy is not the same thing as imperfectly living out our beliefs. Here's the third thing we see in Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Caring for the needs 
of family or friends or neighbors is never a distraction from holiness, from participating in God's mission, and from building God's kingdom. Caring for the needs of your friends and family and neighbors is ground zero of your part in God's mission. That is the front lines. And yet so often we miss that. I was thinking about some examples of this from church history. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, was a pastor in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts uh, in the 18th century. He's most famous for the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, which you probably read in eighth grade. Uh, But he actually did a lot more than that. A pretty notable guy. Uh, And he was a very faithful pastor there in Northampton. But uh, one of the situations that Jonathan Edwards and his church faced as they were caring for their congregation was a husband came to the elders of the church and said, can you please talk to my wife? She's never home because she is so busy proclaiming the gospel in the community. Now, how would you think Jonathan Edwards would respond? He agreed with the husband. This woman was spending so much time working on the kingdom outside of her home that she had failed to love the people God had put right in front of her. That's kind of shocking because we think, hey, that's great. But Jonathan Edwards and the elders realized, no, there are responsibilities to love that this woman is neglecting by her zeal to proclaim the gospel. Slightly closer to home and closer to our time, uh, may, you might have read the uh, works or books of a guy named A.W. Tozer. Uh, Tozer was uh, a prolific uh, pastor and author. He wrote a lot. Uh, after he passed away, his wife remarried, uh, a man named Leonard Odom. And she was asked about being remarried. Uh, and this is what she said. She said, I have never been happier in my life. Tozer loved Jesus, but Leonard loves me. Man, that's hard to hear, isn't it? Again, what we're thinking about is the fact that loving the people God has given us to love is not a distraction from more significant kingdom labors. And it's so easy for ministry to outweigh things like doing the dishes in our lives, to do things like washing the house or painting the house or house projects or, or changing diapers. The point is they are not a distraction from the work of the kingdom that God has called you to do. Think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, strong words thinking about this. Uh, One commentator, uh, thinking back about what Jesus has said about the Pharisees here, says the sin in the story is religious devotion. There is a devotion to God that hurts God because it hurts 
people. Wow. Caring for the need of family and friends and neighbors is not a distraction from the work of the kingdom. That's the third thing we see here. And here's the fourth thing. This is just generically thinking for a moment about the word tradition. Jesus is not condemning all tradition. In fact, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. There is no such thing as traditionless Christianity. That does not exist. Rejecting tradition is itself a tradition. You can't get away from tradition. Tradition is not bad. The point of the passage here is that all tradition must be subject to and evaluated by the Scriptures. We don't get to add requirements to God's law and then judge other people on the basis of those and claim to speak for God. That's what the Pharisees were doing here. So, for instance, I sometimes will talk about our tradition, meaning the Presbyterian or the Reformed tradition. And when I say that, I'm using the word tradition to refer to a historic stream of thinking about what the Scriptures say and of organizing the church uh, that has been handed down through the centuries. And here are a few distinctives of that particular tradition. We think that God alone is Lord of the conscience. And what that means is that only God gets to bind your conscience as to what is good or bad. I can't stand up here and make up rules for you. The Bible is also our last and highest authority. Which means that whenever we have a question about what God wants us to do or how we should do something, where the Bible speaks, it gets the last word. Tradition is not bad, but our tradition must be subject to the Scriptures. Let's jump down. The passage continues there in verse 10. Up till now, the conversation has been between Jesus and the Pharisees from Jerusalem, right? So Jesus is uh, going right at the top religious brass. But in verse 10, it says, Jesus calls the people to him. So the people who might have overheard this conversation, Jesus now gathers to him and says to them, listen, you're not corrupted by what goes in, but rather by what you speak. The disciples respond to that and they said, hey, Jesus, did you realize that was offensive to the Pharisees? Like maybe, maybe don't offend the most important people religiously around. Uh, Jesus says, don't worry about it. Like set them aside because they have set themselves up as teachers, but they are blind. And that is God's evaluation on the Pharisees. It's helpful to note here maybe something for our own conversations with one another. Jesus has no problem offending powerful, obstinate insiders. But Jesus does not speak that way to weak and vulnerable outsiders. His harshest words are for the top brass, not for the huddled masses around him. 
But Peter is still a little confused. And so in verses 15 to 20, he asks for clarification. And Jesus says, Peter, do you not understand? What you eat passes through, but what you speak comes out of your heart. And that defiles you because out of your heart comes evil thoughts like murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Those are the things that defile you, not eating with unwashed hands. This is quite a list of sins that Jesus gives us here. Some of them we look at and we're sort of like, yeah, of course those are defiling. Things like murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft, those make sense to us. But Jesus includes some other things in here that are a little different. He includes evil thoughts and false witness and slander. And friends, those are just in the air we breathe. That is the way we talk as a culture. When Jesus says false witness defiles, he is referring directly to the ninth commandment. And I thought it might be instructive briefly just to run through some of the things that our Westminster Larger Catechism, part of our tradition, understands the ninth commandment to require and to forbid. So the Westminster Larger Catechism unpacks the commandments by saying, what are the duties this is requiring of us and what are the sins this is forbidding. Listen to this. Here is one of the duties required. Here are some of the duties required by the ninth commandment. A charitable esteem of our neighbors. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering their infirmities. Okay? Freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, defending their innocence, and listen to this one, a ready receiving of a good report. You don't ask for verification if you hear that someone has done something good, and an unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them. In other words, if you hear something bad, you do ask for verification before you pass it on or before you receive it. You don't do that, on the other hand, if you've heard they've done something good. Those are duties required by the ninth commandment, which tells us we should not bear false witness. Here are some of the sins forbidden. Calling evil good and good evil. Undue silence in a just cause. Aggravating Smaller faults. I never do that. I hope none of y'all do either. Raising false rumors. Receiving and countenancing evil reports. And stopping our ears against just defense. Do you get what that's saying? That's saying like readily hearing bad news about people and then plugging our ears when we hear the truth that might make it not as bad. That is a sin forbidden by the ninth commandment. Uh, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, which means being upset when someone does something good, being sad that they have done something well, endeavoring or desiring to impair the good credit of, of any, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, rejoicing in disgrace, man. I feel like I see that on TV all the time. 
I feel like that's the internet, basically, is rejoicing in the disgrace of others. Scornful contempt. Again, these are just some. The actual list of all of these sins takes up about two full pages. But when Jesus says it is false witness that defiles us, he is talking to us. He is calling us to look at our own hearts. And in the context of the passage here, remember, the Pharisees are worried about their hands, but Jesus is concerned about their hearts. And what Jesus is reminding us here is that you can't treat heart disease with hand sanitizer. We can't spend our entire lives worrying that sin and defilement are things that are coming to us from outside because the reality is the defilement is already inside. The defilement is our sinful hearts. There is nothing outside you that is more dangerous than your sinful heart inside. The Pharisees were not worried enough about cleanliness and holiness. One commentator put it this way, the filth of the toilet is not so great as that of a human heart not cleansed. When I was in seminary in our preaching classes, one of the things they said to us multiple times because we were all in our early 20s was don't talk about the bathroom and the pulpit. Good advice. They didn't tell us what to do when Jesus talks about the bathroom. And that's the point here. Jesus is talking about filth that isn't filth, and he's saying the real filth is the filth that is the sin in your heart. And friends, I'm going long today, but I'm almost done, and that's the point. This has huge implications for the way we think about the Christian life. Because fundamentally, the Christian life is not about learning to make better choices. It's not about avoiding what is bad. It's about learning to love the right things. The Christian life is fundamentally about learning to love what is true and good and beautiful, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The point that Jesus is underlining here for us is that we need new hearts. And friends, Jesus is doing just that. He is giving us new hearts. He is always teaching us what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. We are saved not just from sin, but we are taught to hate it because we are given hearts that learn to love rightly. We're not just told to do good, we are told and made to love it. That's the whole point of that passage from Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Apostle Paul underlines this as well in Philippians 1 when he says to the Philippian church, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Not that you may avoid what is gross, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Friends, the Christian gospel 
is that God not only loves us, which is true, God does love us, and nowhere do we see that love more clearly than on the cross of Jesus. But the cross is not just about demonstrating God's love. The cross is a place where Christ makes us lovely. In other words, God doesn't just love us. He makes us lovely. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning as people with sinful hearts. We come to you acknowledging that we are often fixated on the dangers outside and we neglect the danger inside. Father, we pray that you would show us our hearts. We pray that you would show us the sin that remains and that you would teach us to turn from it. Teach us to hate our sin and to love what is good. Teach us to love what is true and good and beautiful. Teach us to love you with our whole hearts and souls and minds and strength. Teach us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Conform us and make us more and more like Jesus. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and that you would in fact use them to make us more and more like Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.